invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will be our text this Lord's Day, verses 10 through 17, as we continue to walk through Luke's Gospel together. And in case you weren't with us last week, just to catch you up, what's taken place so far in Luke chapter 9 is Jesus has now called out uh, the twelve to go and to now go and minister. In essence, he sent them on their their first short-term mission trip, their first ministry assignment, where they've now spent about a, a year and a half to two years learning from him, observing him, watching him, and now uh, they have been called out. They've been uh, empowered uh, by Jesus to go and to, to heal, to cast out demons, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And now he's, he sent them out and they have gone and they will spend several weeks going throughout villages and towns ministering in the name of Jesus. And so we see that sending out in Luke chapter 9. And then we also find in Luke chapter 9 the news that Herod the Tetrarch has now beheaded John the Baptist. John the Baptist who was the cousin of Jesus, was the forerunner of Jesus who had uh, preached and proclaimed publicly uh, uh, the sin of Herod and, and all his immorality, and as a result of that, he was imprisoned, and now he has been beheaded. And it's with that context then we pick up in Luke chapter nine uh, with a passage that is likely very familiar uh, to all of us this morning. A passage that has a heading there in your Bible that says Jesus feeds the five thousand, which is uh, not altogether that accurate, as we will see in this passage. He feeds many more than that. But with that introduction, we're going to look at this passage now, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand together as I read for us Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, and this is what God's Word says. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a, a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. If you would pray with me. Father, we have before us a reminder of your great provision for the crowds that had gathered there and to witness firsthand the proclamation of the kingdom of God 
by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have gathered today and that we might witness these same things, that we might come to you in our time of need, seek you for our provision that we need, that we might come to you to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to one another and to those around us. So, Father, help us to understand your word today and to live according to it. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lead us to faith and to repentance through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come to this passage, this Lord's Day, we come to a, a passage that I've already mentioned. It's probably very familiar to you. It is unique in that the, the feeding of the 5,000 is, is the only miracle uh, that is mentioned in all four Gospels, uh, apart from, of course, the miracle of the resurrection. And with that, it's perhaps one of the most well-known miracles. Everyone knows the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But I'll remind you this morning, as I often do, it's important for us to consider when we come to familiar passages, uh, the context, uh, all that's taken place on and around this. For example, we've already mentioned that uh, this event happens and correlates with the return of the apostles who have been sent out and gone on this ministry assignment. They have proclaimed the kingdom. They have healed. They have cast out demons. And now upon their return, uh, Jesus takes them to a desolate place. And yet we see as they often do, these crowds, they, they follow Jesus. It's hard for him to really get away because so many are wanting not only to hear this proclamation of the kingdom, they're, they're wanting to experience this miraculous work, to, to be healed and to have their needs met. At the same time, as Matthew tells us more clearly in his gospel account, uh, Jesus has just been told by his disciples about the beheading of John the Baptist. In fact, it was the disciples who went and who retrieved the body of Jesus, these followers, and as they came and they expressed this news to Jesus, the way Matthew gives us this, this account is that his, his pulling away initially was to, we believe, grieve and, and to mourn the loss of John. And so these two events have kind of collided. The return of the apostles, the, the news of the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus and the apostles then pull away to this desolate place, and of course they are followed by this crowd, and, and Jesus doesn't send them away. He doesn't dismiss them. In fact, he ministers to them and continues to proclaim the kingdom to them. And as he does this, and as this crowd gets larger and larger and larger and larger, this, this concern rises from the disciples about how all these people are going to have their needs met. And yet Jesus will use this providentially as a setting to teach them our great lesson, as one gospel writer tells us, to, to test them yet again in their faith. Because what we see here is that the, the apostles had not graduated. <laughs> it wasn't that in following Jesus for a year and a half or two years that they learned everything they needed to know and now they were ready to go out and apply all of that. No, they, they are still very much learning. They're going to learn in this narrative we read today. And it's a reminder to us that that we too are still learning. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for two months, two years, 20 years, or 
the entirety of a long life, there is still something for you and I to learn this morning. We are disciples, we are followers, and as such, we are learning day after day. In fact, you would think it would be enough to read these things and learn a lesson once, but we know that's not true, isn't it? I was thinking just earlier as Jacob was reading that passage from Matthew chapter 6, that was the very passage that I preached right at 13 years ago to a search committee who came to hear me preach in order to lead to the events that would lead to me being called here to serve as your pastor. I remember preparing that sermon and preaching that sermon. I wish I could say I had lived out that passage perfectly in 13 years, but I haven't. I, like many of you, I get anxious, and I get worried, and so I need the daily reminder of God's Word. I need to be told over and over again by the Word of God, do not worry, do not be anxious. I need to come to familiar passages, just as you do today, that we might learn from them once again what it means to fully trust in Jesus to meet all of our needs, because we are a terribly self-sufficient people. But we pride ourselves on taking care of our own needs. <laughs> you have likely found yourself in a situation like I have very recently where there's a, a need in your life and so many people say, was well, there anything I can do to help? And rather than say, yes, you could do this and this and this and this, what do we say? No, we're, we're fine. I'm okay. I got this. And yet if there's anything we learn from the gospel, it is that we don't got this. <laughs> We need daily to come before the Lord with our needs. And we're reminded of that as we come to this passage and as we consider this context. And so let's walk through this passage now. I put three observations there before you in your outline. The first one is this. Number one, we see that needs expose the object of our faith. Needs expose the object of our faith, meaning that when there's a need in our life, that that need tends to expose who or what we are trusting in to meet needs as they come before us. We see a need here that will present itself again. We begin there in verse 10 with a reminder that the apostles have now returned, and as Luke gives his account, he says on their return, uh, the apostles told him all that they had done. And so you can imagine, uh, really, the, the, the books that could be written and the stories that are being told. The, the apostles have now gone on their, their first ministry assignment. Uh, without Jesus there with them, they were divided up, you'll remember, two by two. They've gone out into the towns and villages, and, and Jesus has given them the power and the authority to, to heal diseases, to cast out demons as evidences that he is indeed the Messiah, that the kingdom has indeed come as a foundation then for the apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God, that people might repent and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Messiah. And so you can imagine the stories that they were telling as they're telling Jesus about all that they had done. And perhaps... Andrew would share a story about how he went into a village, and in that village there were there outside of the perimeter of the city uh, two beggars who had leprosy, and how he had approached these two beggars with leprosy, and in the name of Jesus had healed them, and then with them went into the town, and how they praised God before the people, and how many put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah. 
We can't help but wonder upon someone like Andrew telling a story like that if his brother Peter they would then say, well, I went to a town and there were three lepers that I healed, you know. Sometimes we tend to do that as, as these events take place. There might have been a, a bit of boasting, a bit of pride in what took place as one apostle would share about the great works that had happened here, then another one would share about even greater works that happened here. I don't personally think it's coincidental that all the gospel writers in their account, they use this same terminology, that the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And again, I, surely, I, I believe as we see this evidence and testimony in the Scriptures, I, I believe they did all of this in the name of Jesus. They, they gave glory to God, but, but I wonder if, if they, like we, are often tempted to take a bit of the credit for ourselves in these situations that we really have little to nothing to do with. And I was thinking along these lines as I was rereading an account that some of you are probably familiar with. It's a rather famous one. It was a press conference that took place on March 28, 1990, which was the evening that Michael Jordan scored his career high in a basketball game. He scored 69 points. And at the press conference afterwards, if you haven't ever seen it or read about it, you can imagine all the reporters were fascinated with this feat and all the attention was on Michael Jordan. And then as they asked questions over and over again, uh, eventually, one reporter asked a question of a rookie named Stacy King. And Stacy King was on the other end of the spectrum in that game because as a rookie, he got in, played for a number of minutes, but he managed to score only one point. <laughs> well overshadowed by what Jordan had done, and yet a reporter asked him a question. And this was King's response about his performance that night. He said, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> now, of course, uh, King was joking and everyone laughed, but I think sometimes we, we tend to think along those lines, not so much joking. I think perhaps even the apostles here may have been feeling a, a little bit of personal pride in all these things they had done, you know. They are the rookies, and they've gone out on this task, and they've been empowered. And, and as we see at times with the apostles, they, they can take things on themselves a bit and trust in themselves a bit too much. And perhaps now they're coming back a bit boastful and prideful. And yet, Jesus, knowing all this, has before them providentially an opportunity to show them that they are insufficient, <laughs> and that he is terribly sufficient, these needs that they are about to see will expose what they are truly trusting in. And so now, as they have withdrawn and as these reports have been shared, Luke tells us that when the crowds learn where Jesus and the apostles are, they followed him, and yet again, Jesus welcomed them. He spoke to them about the kingdom. He cured those with the need of healing uh, but the day grows long. He, he says it begins to wear away. And Luke tells us the disciples become concerned. Uh, they become concerned specifically about how all these people are going to eat and where all these people are going to stay. And so as Luke tells us, the twelve come to Jesus and they say to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. Now, 
it should stand out to us that the apostles don't go to Jesus and say, uh, Jesus, these people need food, they need a place to eat, what, what do you think we should do? <laughs> uh, Jesus, what, what's, what's the next step? What's the plan? It, it would seem here, I think, further evidence that perhaps the apostles at this point are a little boastful and prideful, having come off of this ministry assignment and seen these miraculous works of God in their presence by their hands, that now there's a bit of them calling the shots and them going to Jesus and them telling Jesus, well, here's what we need to do, Jesus. And not that any of us would ever be tempted to do that, would we? <laughs> and to go to our Lord Jesus and say, well, here's what you need to do, Jesus. And that seems to be what they're doing here. And so the, the day has gotten late. They are concerned. They go to him. John gives us a bit more insight to what takes place here because it seems... You know, obviously, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he, he knows their concerns, he knows their worry. And so, in the midst of this, he says to Philip, John tells us, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, John tells us, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, a 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, you look at that exchange, you may wonder, well, why did Jesus specifically call out Philip? But when we look into Philip's background a bit, we realize that Philip is from this very region and these surrounding areas of this desolate place they pulled away to. So it makes sense that Jesus would turn to Philip. This is a sense his home territory. He, he would know the places to buy bread. And as the disciples are worried and anxious and fretting and again, trying to figure out themselves how they're going to meet this need, Jesus here, in order to test them, says, well, well sounds like you need to go buy bread then. <laughs> Where are you going to go get the bread, Philip? And Philip, considering his resources, the resources of the apostles, he, he starts to do the math. He starts to try to figure it out. And that's often what we do, isn't it? When there's this need that presents itself, especially an extraordinary need that presents itself, we immediately go into this self-sufficient mode of how we can fix it and how we can figure it out. Well, well, I can do this and I can do this and maybe this person can do this. And we, we immediately try to figure out what we're going to do to fix it. And that's what the apostles are doing here. They're, they're trying to figure out what they were going to do to fix it. And yet again, I believe what Jesus is doing here is this, this need is providentially here to expose that the apostles, who at this point you would think would be fully trusting in Jesus, are likely trusting in themselves and what they could do. Just as in our lives, needs have a way of exposing who or what we are actually trusting in. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. Just this week, <laughs> I was reminded that when, when unexpected needs arise, when moments of crisis come, my flesh response is to go into this self-preservation mode. So, i, I got to fix this. I got to take care of this. I, I've got to, rather than just stopping and praying and seeking God. We, we often, in the moment of crisis and need, we, we do stop and pray, but so often it's once we have exhausted every resource that we stop and pray, rather than starting with that. 
Now, now surely God, I believe, and his word tells us, he, he's given us abilities and resources to meet these needs, knowing what our needs are even before they arise. And so I'm not suggesting that we just, you know, in essence, sit on our hands and never do work. There, there's a blessing to fixing things as God has enabled us to fix things, but we need to be careful that in doing this, that we don't start to rely solely on ourselves. That we don't get the spirit of pride and independence where we're not trusting in God every day for everything and praising Him for all things. And I think that's being exposed here among the apostles. I think that's why we read in the gospel accounts that Jesus indeed, through this providential event, He was testing Him. Just as I believe He allows these times of crisis in our life that we too might be tested to ask the same questions that surely the apostles needed to ask here. Because what we see Jesus doing here is he uses this extraordinary need to expose the apostles' insufficiency to meet this need. Which brings us to that second observation. Again, extraordinary needs expose our insufficiency. And so here we have the apostles having this conversation and very quickly coming to the conclusion they cannot meet this need. In fact, when you put together all four gospel accounts that tell us of this event, you find consistently the mention that there were 5,000 men. You also find mentioned with that besides women and children. Meaning that those who were counted among the masses were just the men. And that with the men, there were thousands of others. How many? We don't know. But we could speculate as we consider a massive crowd like this, if you were just to count the adult men among that crowd and then consider how many of the women would have been there, how many of the children would have been there, that this crowd of 5,000, this heading that Jesus feeds the 5,000, more likely is a crowd of 10, 15,000, maybe even more that Jesus feeds this extraordinary crowd. That, that should be the heading for us. And this exposes their utter insufficiency, but, but at least they missed the point. Notice what Jesus tells them in verse 13. As they're debating this and trying to figure this out, as Philip's done the math and realizes that even if they had all this money that they don't have, they couldn't even give everybody a little bit to eat. Jesus says to them, verse 13, you give them something to eat. <laughs> now that may seem like a peculiar statement to us. As Jesus looks at them and says, well, you, you give them something to eat. And they've mentioned or will mention here that all they have are five loaves and two fish. And we know from the other gospel accounts that this is the meal that comes to them from a boy in the crowd. These five loaves and two fish, they, they have been exaggerated over the years in our art, in our imaginations. We, we tend to think of them as these, two, these five giant French loaves of bread and these two big fish. Contextually, historically, more likely what this is, we're... Two fish that we might think more of is, is pickled sardines. That, that was a common meal in this day that people would take with them. They would have these, these very small fish that they would pickle and preserve and salt, and, and then they could carry them with them on journeys. They could take them out and eat them for lunch. 
These loaves would have been more like what we would think of as a, as a dinner roll. I mean, again, this was a boy. This was his lunch. You know, his mother did not send him out that day saying, well, you know, you may need to feed a few others, maybe 15,000. Let me pack some extra here. And these aren't big French loaves of bread. These are small dinner rolls. I might even think of them as small biscuits and, and two little fish. And that's all they've got. That there was no preparation made here, obviously, by the apostles for what was taking place. They returned from their trip, which will remember Jesus told them what? Don't take any provision with you. <laughs> so they generally haven't come back with any. And now they've withdrawn to this desolate place. Now these thousands have followed them. There was no preparation for this, which is why you can imagine they're fretting and worried and anxious about what's going to happen. It's an extraordinary need indeed, but Jesus is using it that they might see their insufficiency, especially when he says to them, you give them something to eat. And yet I don't think that statement is simply that they might realize their insufficiency. I think it has great messianic implications. That this is where knowledge of the Old Testament helps us greatly in reading the New Testament. Because that, that phrase, you give them something to eat, especially in reference to a meal for one that's to feed many, well, that's happened before. It's almost a direct quote of what we read in 2 Kings chapter 4. In 2 Kings chapter 4, you have a situation where Elisha was there with a hundred of his men. They needed to be fed. There was no provision. Someone brings provision to Elisha, provision for him, food for one. He turns to his servant and he says, Go give this to them to eat. The servant looks at what's there, looks at them. There's no way this is going to feed a hundred. Elisha says, you give them this to eat. Because God was going to work a miracle in that situation. He did. A hundred men ate from the meal intended for one. And we read in 2 Kings that there was plenty left over when they were done. You see, the Jewish people were taught for centuries that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would be the greater Elisha, the greater Moses, that, that all these greats of old, the Messiah would be even greater and the Messiah would do even greater works than they did. And so when Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat, there's an opportunity there for them to, to, to clue in, to think and say, oh, wait, 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 we, we, we've heard of that before. We, we were told this before. I remember my father, as we would sit and eat, he would remind us of how God provided for many through the provision of one, how, how God is our great provider. I remember that story. And yet it seems in this situation they didn't remember that story. That they're missing it as they often missed it. Because they go on to say, all we have are these five loaves and this two fish that this boy brought to us. Now they've missed it, but, but surely they're understanding at least their insufficiency in this moment. That they're not sufficient to meet this need. There's, there's no way they could do this. Have you ever been on the banks of that cliff? Where, where before you, what seems to be this enormous chasm, this hopeless situation, 
that there's no way unless God provides. There's no way. And in those moments, we, we can fret and we can worry and we can be anxious. And I say this to you, someone who frets and worried and is anxious. And yet it's in those moments that that God has laid the very foundation that we might learn to trust in Him even more. And surely we see that lesson here. This, This extraordinary need exposes the insufficiency of the apostles. And extraordinary needs in our life, they do the same thing. I mean, when are you and I most likely to just cry out to the Lord? Is it when you get your paycheck and you look at your bills and there's enough money there to pay all the bills? Do you, do you in those moments just cry out to God this thankfulness and, and just pray over that? And Lord, thank you for this. And, and I trust you're going to meet all these needs with this and just pray and pray and pray. Or is it in those moments when that bill, when that need comes up, that the paycheck isn't going to cover? <laughs> and you turn here and you turn here and you exhaust this and you still can't cover it. And then there's this enormous need there or, or greater than a financial need. A medical crisis, a health need. Something you can't just put a Band-Aid on. You go to this doctor and that doctor and this doctor and that doctor and it seems nobody has an answer for you. See, it's at those moments of of the exposure of our insufficiency and our inabilities to do anything that we are pushed, I believe, by the Lord to our knees. He providentially allows these, and often it comes through our suffering and pain. Because sadly, it seems there's nothing else that drives us to that critical point of crying out to God. When my children were small, I can remember multiple situations where I was trying to tell them something and and I thought, you know, they're not paying attention. As a parent, I would try to get their attention. And I can remember there were times with my kids when they were little where I I literally would just reach down and kind of gently turn their face to look at me. Say, look look at me. I I need you to hear this. They're looking everywhere else. Look at me. And then then I just kind of turn their face look at me. And sometimes that face looked right at me, and sometimes it was like, you know. There's a, I don't want to look at you. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. So, you know, you apply a little bit more pressure. You've got to look at me right now. And I think sometimes in our moments of, of great desperation and suffering and pain and crisis that, that our Father graciously to say, just, would you just look at me for a moment? I want to teach you something. I want to tell you something, right? And a quote I've, I've shared with you before. C.S. Lewis said it well in a book. He writes about this, The Problem of Pain. He says it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And these extraordinary needs, they expose our insufficiency so that we might turn and just look to the Father. And I think that's what we see here, that this extraordinary need certainly is teaching the apostles this, teaching the masses this. Because I believe that the point of all of this, 
that is missed by so many, the point of all this is that this is all about Jesus. He indeed is the Lord's Christ. He is the one who is all sufficient. He is the one who is able to meet every need. Brings us to that third observation before you. Jesus is all sufficient and able to meet every need. Verse 14 continues, Jesus says to the disciples, and now that he said to them, you give them something to eat, and they've looked probably utterly clueless at one another, and their insufficiency is exposed, now the Lord will provide. But notice how he does it. He says to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. That, that word sit, the specific word is used here of what it means to incline at a dinner table. <laughs> That's the word that Jesus uses here. Have them all go sit down. Have them all get ready for this meal. Now, some of you like me have been to, to large events where there's a meal for many people. Not, not long ago, uh, we had an event at Sandy's work where there were probably, I don't know, a hundred people or so there that were going to eat, and it was a, a pleasant afternoon, kind of a, a, a spread outside, and, and we walked up, and you could see all the people, and you could see all the tables, and then you saw the food. There was a whole hog sitting there, cooked, ready, not just that, that there were buffet tables with serving trays. The, the second service is going to hate this as I go through it. You guys probably ate not long ago. But anyways, just all this food sat out. And not just that, there, there were drink tables and dessert tables. And so as you, you walk up, you start to position yourself to sit close to all that. But in 100 people, you, you want to be up there. You want to eat. You can see the food. So when they say, okay, everybody take a seat, everybody get ready. Okay, we're sitting, but we're getting up soon. 10,000? 15,000 people? I mean, you can imagine the conversations. The apostles are going through crap. Okay, I need, I need you people, about 50 of you, to sit right here. We're about to eat. I don't see a whole hog. I mean, especially that wouldn't be a whole hog. I don't see a big stack of loaves. <laughs> you can imagine the apostles are getting questions. Oh, what, where's the food? Jesus, he's going to take care of this. I mean, perhaps even somebody asked, you know, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, I got my family here, I got my, my cousins, the grandparents, we all came in. Where's the food? How are we gonna? Why are you wanting us to sit and eat? How are we gonna eat? Well, we we've got uh, five dinner rolls and two sardines. <laughs> but I mean, Jesus just laying the foundation here for for all of them to bear witness to this miraculous work. And again, what what were the Jewish people taught to look for? One greater is coming. And for the Jewish people, if there was a story they were told when they sat down to eat and to thank God for provision, it was the story of how God had brought food from the heavens, the manna, to feed the masses. How the people were in the wilderness and how God is the great provider and how they were there in the wilderness and there were thousands upon thousands of them and God does what? He supplies miraculously. He meets their needs. 
that they might learn to trust him. And maybe the disciples didn't clue in to the verbiage that points them to Elisha, but certainly among these thousands, somebody at this point is starting to clue in. Somebody who's already trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. Somebody who taught their children that when the Messiah comes, he will do even greater works than those who came before him. Somebody who, as they sat their family down and their children down and their kids said, Where, where's the food? They said, God, God's going to provide. Just as he did for our fathers, 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 God's going to provide. And oh, did God provide. <laughs> Verse 16, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven. He blessed them. He broke the loaves. The other gospel writers tells us he, he did this with the fish as well. And he then begins to just send this food out to the crowd. The, the picture here is that the apostles would come with empty hands. They would leave with full hands. They would give that out. They'd come back to Jesus with empty hands. they leave with full hands over and over and over again. You can imagine how long this would take. And how Jesus miraculously here continues out of nothing creates something out of nothing creates something just as God always has done and then <laughs> they all eat and they're satisfied Luke tells us so they they all ate and they were satisfied that that word means they were full like full full like thanksgiving full so if you need a proof text on overeating at times, here it is. Jesus let them right into this. And they eat until they're just so full they can't eat anything else. And then he goes on to say, what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. I don't think that's coincidental that there were 12 baskets of broken pieces. How many apostles were there? There were 12. Jesus is able to meet every need. And so as these men go out and they serve Jesus and they feed all these people, we don't know. They ate along the way. I think perhaps this is an indication that towards the end, they're probably starting to think, when are we going to eat? And Jesus does what? Okay, pick up. Oh, there you each have ba these baskets. These weren't, these were huge baskets. Full, abundantly. Here's everything each one of you need. Why? Because Jesus is the great provider. That, that's the point. This is about Jesus. So, so you hear a sermon from someone who says to this text, well, what this means is that if you, you just have enough faith, then God's going to multiply your paycheck like he did the loaves and fishes. Wrong. <laughs> it's not about your faith. It's about Jesus. And then you hear this guy over here is one I read just this week. In a commentary, say, well, well, what really happened here is all the people were selfish and they were all kind of holding their food back. They didn't want others to know they had food. They wanted to take care of themselves. And then this little boy, he starts to share. And then all of them start to share. And then the way they all ate was because everybody shared. Wrong. It's about Jesus. It's not about sharing. Everything in this passage is to point us to Christ. He is the one our focus should be on when we read this passage and the next and the next and the next. This is not a self-help talk. 
That this is not an encouragement for you to share. It's an encouragement for you to trust in Jesus. And yes, you should share. You got a bunch of fish? I'm parked right out there. Share with me. That's not the point, though. The point is trust in Jesus. Specifically when? When your need is the greatest. And what is your great need today? What is it that perhaps nobody else knows about? What are you so anxious about that when you lay there in bed at night, you are so worried and anxious and your mind just stirs? Moms and dads, you might be anxious about your kids. Grandparents, you might be anxious about your grandkids. You might be anxious about our world and our country and our leaders. You might be anxious about your finances and your health. There are so many things to be anxious about. I actually, in preparation for this sermon, I was listing out categories of anxiety, and now if I read all these, everybody's going to get anxious. <laughs> You'd be like, great, I didn't realize I should be anxious, but I'll be at- now I'm anxious about that. We worry so much, don't we? And what does Jesus tell us? He What's the lesson? We come to him with empty hands, we leave with full hands, because his hands are never empty. And so it simply comes down to us today. Will we come to him with our empty hands? Will you, will I today trust in him? I think that's the question for us this day and each Lord's day, and that's the one I want us to consider as we go now into this time of response. If you would stand together as I pray for us.